0: Hi, I'm Lord Shinkman.
1: And I'm Kim Hawk, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo.
2: Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi,
3: everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to this episode of ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the Project Director of the Southeast ADA Center. Uh, As a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use the online form anytime at adalive.org. On this episode, we'll look at disability employment policy in Great Britain. In the UK, over 60 disability organizations have united to press the British government to take more action to end employment discrimination against people with disabilities. Much like the US, the employment gap between people with disabilities and non-disabled people is large with no evidence of narrowing that gap in sight. To address this, these groups have introduced the Disability Employment Charter. The charter drawn up by charities, academics, trade unions, lays out nine actionable steps the government needs to take to address employment inequities experienced by people with disabilities. These steps are very bold and they're very ambitious. So we're honored today to have as our guest Lord Kevin Shinkwin, member of the House of Lords, the United Kingdom, and Professor Kim Hoke, Professor of Human Resource Management and Director of the Industrial Relations Research Unit, University of Warwick Business School. They'll discuss how the Disability Employment Charter came about, its vision, its mission, and impact for people with disabilities. Our host today, Dr. Peter Blank, Chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute and University Professor at Syracuse University. Peter, I'll turn it over to you.
4: Thank you, Barry and Lord Shinquin and Professor Hogue. It's a great honor to be with you both. You are both extraordinary leaders in your country and we have much to learn from what you have undertaken. Unfortunately, in the United States, the typical American probably knows more about Harry Potter than he does about the Americans with Disabilities Act or she, or uh, let alone the UK disability discrimi- anti-discrimination efforts uh, as well as uh, UK law. Perhaps we can start with an understanding that in the United States, we have now passed the 30th anniversary of our Americans with Disabilities Act. And yet the employment picture for people with disabilities generally hasn't shifted all that much. And in some ways, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, has been transformed and complicated by the terrific uh, international pandemic, which has social and economic implications besides health implications that we are all dealing with. But perhaps uh, if I may, Lord Shinkwin and Professor Hogue, you can lay a foundation about disability perspectives and employment in the UK and why it has led you to take the paths you have taken.
0: Um, Peter, if I I may go first. Um, What I first of all like to say is that the Americans with Disabilities (laughs) has laid the foundations for so much of what we have done here in the United Kingdom. Uh, so I wouldn't underpay in any way its significance. It preceded our legislation by five years um, and was a, a really, really important milestone for us. It provided impetus and enabled us, um, and particularly the disability movement, to argue that we needed legislation, civil rights legislation, here in the UK. Without the ADA, it would have been so much harder for us to make that case. Peter, in response to your important question about the progress made since um, the Disability Discrimination Act, or DDA, that was passed 26 years ago. Um, I will leave it to Professor Hock to talk about the statistics, but what I can say is that the Disability Employment gap stubbornly remains at about 30%. It has fallen slightly uh, in that quarter of a century or so, but nothing like as much as was hoped it would, when that came
4: into law. Thank you, Lord Shinquin. Uh Before we turn to, to Professor Hogue, may I ask um, about your passion for this area and your leadership in the UK government? How has that been developed and received and um, what are your aspirations for going forward? And then of course, we can speak about the charter with Professor Hogue.
0: Of course. Thank you. So I should just clarify, I'm not in the government. Um, We have got a clear delineation between uh, government and what we call backbenchers. I'm only a backbencher and I'm a life peer. So I was appointed. I haven't inherited a Um, tassel. I wasn't born with a silver spoon. I was born with a Broken leg, which uh, was the first warning sign doctors that, um, that I, I had brittle bones. Um, my passion is equality, equality of opportunity, and not just for disabled people, but across the piece. So um, looking at gender, ethnicity, and LGBTQ plus, because I think there is so much. Encouragement to be derived from looking at the progress of uh, women uh, and, for example, of the LGBT plus community, that helps us to believe that societies and societies' attitudes can change. In terms of my engagement with government and your question about how well as what I am asking for being received. The answer is not well, because sadly, the system, government per se, still suffers from a deficit of lived experience. Thankfully, not on ethnicity, nor on gender, or even LGBTQ+. But on disability, there is a massive deficit of lived experience. So what that means is the conversation around the cabinet room table is still being conducted by non-disabled people talking about what they're going to do to and for disabled people. Until you change composition, of a boardroom table, you will never fundamentally change the conversation.
4: Well, I think that's a very good point at which uh, our research center, we have a national research training center in the United States, which is looking at among those exact issues in terms of not only boardroom participation in the private sector, but of course, leadership from the CEO on down. Besides having somebody with a disability or of color or a woman, and I'm not denigrating that position, um, working in as a chief diversity officer, which is important, but nonetheless, it's important for diversity in the operations of the business as well. Professor Hoag, may I turn to you to um, reflect perhaps and expand on what Lord Shenquin has been discussing. You are a leading researcher and expert in the country and involved with very innovative approaches such as the National Charter. And perhaps you can uh, build on what Lord Shenk when said and tell us about your activities.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Peter. So, I mean, the work that I've been doing over the last uh, probably seven or eight years now in the disability field has been with my disability at work uh, colleagues. Uh, we came together, as I say, seven or eight years ago to form Disability at Work to provide a nice way of branding, really, the work that we do to give it greater visibility. And um, that has then subsequently led me to become involved with the all party parliamentary group uh, for disability, uh, for which I now co provide the uh, secretariat. Uh, and the uh, Lord Shinkwin is actually the vice chair of the. Uh, all-party parliamentary group and this has been an absolutely excellent way really of being able to uh, influence policy debate within parliament uh, and to you know inject a a, a research focus into that policy debate as well Um, and that's fed through into reports that we have uh, written for the uh, all-party parliamentary group um And it's also fed into the fact that the all-party parliamentary group itself has been able to open doors to us, uh, to policymakers, um, to the Minister for Disabled People, for example. And these are exactly the sorts of people that you really want to be talking to uh, if you're attempting to influence policy.
4: Now, in the United States, uh, our institute, uh, the Burton Blatt Institute and its sister centre, the Southeast ADA, have been very fortunate to receive this past year, two large center grants, which are national one-of-a-kind grants to look at the future of work for people with disabilities from a rigorous uh, scientific approach. For example, we are conducting randomized control trial studies of workplace accommodations and corporate culture and so forth. My question is, in the UK, how have you been able to get a handle on some of these metrics about board composition, provision of workplace accommodations, and in what ways will the National Charter, which please tell us about, uh, facilitate those efforts for a more rigorous base of information that employers can use?
0: I I think the metrics are very important, totally agree with you on on that. Um, Our National Health Service, has a set of metrics that include not only a pay gap uh, for uh, disability and other protected characteristics uh, reporting, um, but also a progression in terms of representation at different levels um, and and representation on decision-making bodies, for example, committees or, or boards, um, and what's really, really intelligent, and Professor Hop, um will be able to elaborate on this, is that we're finding that despite the fact that government is being dogmatic in its dismissal of tr- the case for transparency and consistency that is so essential, in enabling true meritocracy and competition by providing a level playing field for firms who want to compete for diverse talent. Actually, businesses like Clifford Chance, and I would single out Matthew Layton, its global managing partner, as a fantastic example of the leadership that you highlighted as being essential, they are already already doing what government is saying business aren't willing to try. They're actually already doing it in in terms of, for example, pay gap reporting, as is EY and other big companies. So what government is saying can't be done businesses are are already getting on with doing. And government is making itself in the UK increasingly irrelevant because they have their head in the sand and the momentum lies with the big corporates. Um, So I think it's time that government caught up, and I'm really happy to put on record my gratitude to Professor Hott for developing the Charter and giving the government an opportunity to think again and really engage with disabled people and business about the way forward.
4: Thank you for that answer, uh, Lord Shinquin. And thank you, Professor Hogue. Before I turn to you, Professor Hogue, I just want to remind our very large ADA Live listening audience across the country that if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topics, you can submit your questions online at www.adalive, one word, .org, or call the South East ADA Center in the USA at 1-404-541-9001. And now, a word from our episode sponsor.
2: The Disability Employment Charter is a call for the government of the United Kingdom to act. It proposes a set of vital measures that if implemented in a concerted manner would substantially shift the dial on disability employment. By setting out clearly and simply the actions needed, it provides government with a roadmap for change as it develops the next phases of its National Disability Strategy. The charter consists of nine areas of action. Each of the nine areas contain several specific tasks that we believe will help engender significant improvement to disabled people's employment outcomes. To learn more about the Disability Employment Charter, please visit www.disabilityemploymentcharter.org.
4: So uh, Professor Hogue, tell us more about the UK and the the charter proposed and um, what may be some of the tangible outcomes you expect and hope and what are some of the challenges ahead and of course please talk about the elephant in the room and that is the covid pandemic and its implications
1: yeah absolutely thank you peter so just in terms of a bit of background on the the charter itself and so i mean this is something that i had as an idea really about four four years three four years ago now um that it occurred to me that there's a lot of people who talk to government about matters to do a disability employment policy. Uh, A lot of people trying to get government to go in certain directions. And a lot of those suggestions and ideas that people are putting forward they, they actually overlap quite closely so what would make sense would be for those groups to come together to form something along the lines of a charter where they can then have a much more united front to government and say look this is what we're calling for uh, these are the set th- this is a set of policies that we would like to see you uh, implement um As as a united front, they would be much stronger. Uh, It would be much clearer to government what it is that people are actually calling for, because everybody would have galvanised around this um, and they'd have put their name to it. And this is what they'd be calling on the government to do. So this isn't actually anything that I did anything about for quite a while. I then had a discussion with uh, a very senior Uh, individual at Disability Rights UK, uh, who quite liked the idea, uh, ran the idea past a number of other organisations in the disability world, and then the coalition of the founder members came together. Uh, so we now have on, on board on the coalition, the Business Disability Forum. Uh, we have uh, Disability Rights UK, and those are both two very important national level organizations. We've got national level charities, such as uh, Leonard Cheshire and Scope. Uh, we've got the DFN Foundation and the Shore Trust Foundation. Uh, we also have um, Unison, which is the country's largest trade union, uh, and of course, University uh, of Warwick. And and my organisation, which is Disability at Work. So the the charter itself came together as a result of discussions that we had between us in relation to all the sorts of things that we've been pushing the government to do. We brought together in the charter that actually took quite a while to do, as you can imagine. um, But it occurred to us that if we across the coalition of founder members could reach agreement in terms of what it is that we wanted to go in there, there'd be a distinct possibility that we'll be able to get other organizations to sign up to it. So we launched the charter in October, At that point, we had 37 signatories in total uh, to the Charter. Uh, Since that time, that number has grown to 64, which, in our view, sends a message to government which is pretty strong around the fact that the sorts of policies and proposals that are outlined within the Charter, that there's a lot of support for those, um, that there's a great deal of consensus, there's a very strong platform of support with people aligning behind the Charter and basically saying to government, these are the sorts of policies that we want you to put in place. If you put these in place, uh, we will not in any way object as employers to that. Uh, We think that the sorts of things that the Charter are calling for are needed. Uh, They will create a level playing field. Uh, They will actually push us to go further in terms of what we're doing around the employment of disabled people. So that was really what it was all about. It was about, say, you know, being in a position where when we go and talk to governments, that we're not just going in and talking to government as you know individual organisations where the government can then just say, well, it's just you saying that, isn't it? You know, how, if we went to talk to somebody else, how would we know that they would actually be saying the same thing? We're now in a position where we can say to government, look, we've got these nine key areas that we want you to be focusing on. Um, we've provided you some detail in terms of what those nine key areas should be. Uh, we're all in accordance with this. We're all aligned behind this. Uh, and this is where, this is what we want you to move forward on. And that's a very powerful message. And that's very difficult, I think, for government to ignore, uh, given, the, as I say, the number of uh, organisations that are now aligned uh, behind the Charter.
4: May I ask you both, uh, perhaps it's uh, my lack of understanding, but uh, in the United States, of course, we are not a country generally that has a concept of universal health care and the type of benefits, at least I understand social safety net benefits that are generally available in the UK and other countries uh, in Europe. Uh, My question is, in light of those safety net Uh, protections that you have, at least from an American point of view, why has the employment rate for persons with disabilities been still so stubbornly low and not all that different from that of the United States?
0: So in answer to your question, uh, Peter, um, I think the stubbornness issue is because the conversation fundamentally remains the same, which is because there is a deficit of lived experience in government and in parliament, non-disabled people are still going around in circles asking what can we do for and to disabled people? And until the question is asked by disabled people around the table saying, what can all of us do? Then in education and in what we call work and pensions where the benefits that you mentioned uh, for disabled people here in the UK are administered. Until that happens, those two departments won't be sufficiently focused on transforming the life chances of disabled people and equality of opportunity. Because until we address education and employment, and also housing and independent living, but particularly education and employment, we won't make progress. As a closing statement, I would just like to say a huge thank you to ADA Live for hosting this event and to reiterate my enormous gratitude to the uh, United States for spearheading the drive for civil rights for disabled people through the ADA, it was an, such an important milestone for us to build on, and it is down to politicians with lived experience, like myself, with allies such as Professor Holt and the growing number of businesses committed in practice to equality of opportunity to realize the potential that was set by the APA and five years after that by our own Disability Discrimination Act. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Lord Shenkwen. It really has been an honor to speak with you and to, for you to take your time to express your leadership and your commitment to this area. And I hope that we will continue in the United States to learn from your important efforts and share with you those advancements that we may undertake here as well. Thank you again. So Kim, um, do you wanna fill in with uh, any final statements about um, your research and how you hope to examine the effectiveness or implement the effectiveness of the charter? And what, what perhaps is, n- not all these questions, but any one of them, uh, what is next in the UK? Are there any important cases, legal cases or initiatives on the horizon, proposed legislation and so
1: forth? Okay, so I think that r- the big thing at the moment that's going on in the UK uh, in the disability employment field is the National Disability Strategy, uh, which uh, was launched by the government in July uh, of this year. Um, It was supposed to be, or at least as the Prime Minister had promised, it was going to be ambitious and transformative. Now, I think a lot of people in the disability field um, looked at the national strategy uh, when it was published and said, well, it's a start, at least employment is in there, but really what it's doing is announcing more in terms of consultations and reviews than it is of substantive new policy. So, for example, there's a consultation in there which is on the introduction of uh, mandatory disability employment reporting, which is good to see, but it's only a consultation. We don't know where that's going to end up. Uh, There's also a review of the the government's disability confidence uh, scheme as well, which again is positive, Myself and a lot of other people have argued that it needs to be reviewed. Uh, but again, we don't know where that's going to uh, ultimately going to end. Um, so I think a lot of people looked at the, the, the national strategy and said there's a lot more that could be done. The government can and should have gone significantly further than it did. And I think in many ways that provided a fair bit of the impetus for the uh, disability employment charter because what the disability employment charter does is outline the ways in which the government could be doing that and the sorts of policies that it could be putting into place. That's why I think it's kind of really grabbed the public uh, imagination uh, and has got onto the minister's radar already. We had a, a discussion with her about the charter only yesterday. Uh, she raised the charter as well in a speech that she gave in the house of lords yesterday, sorry, in the house of uh, commons yesterday evening. Um, so it's very much on her radar. Um, so I think in the immediate uh, uh, future, uh, what we'll be looking to do with the Charter is to influence the uh, mandatory disability employment uh, reporting consultation uh, with a view to actually getting mandatory Disability employment uh, reporting put into place. Uh, We want to see that in place for all employers with uh, 250 or more uh, employees. Um, And the other thing that we'll be looking to do, as it's ongoing at the moment, uh, is to influence the government's uh, review of the Disability Confidence Scheme. Um, So, really, what the Charter is about now. Uh, is two things we need to carry well probably three actually I think we need to carry on promoting it we need to get more corporate sign up to it, the more corporate sign up to the charter the better because I think that's really going to make the government uh, sit up and listen, uh, when they see that employers as well as trade unions and uh, charities and disabled people's organisations uh, are aligned behind the uh, Disability Employment Charter. Uh, we need to make sure that it is publicised as widely as possible, so that as many disabled people as possible are aware of its existence. It then becomes important, not just you know for all the reasons we've discussed so far, but it actually becomes important in electoral terms. It actually matters to the government in terms of votes that disabled people can see that they're responding to these sorts of initiatives. And Then the other thing that we need to do is to leverage the charter as much as we possibly can from the point of influencing government policy in the areas that government's focusing on currently and also in relation to the areas that government is, is hopefully going to be turning to in the future. And if it doesn't turn to those areas, we will be pushing as hard as we possibly can to make sure that it does. All right. So in terms of the charter, they're the key things. Now, I'd also like to say in terms of the charter that these are not, if you will, ideas and policy recommendations that have just simply been plucked out of the ether. Uh, these are all policy recommendations that are backed in research. Uh, some of that research done by myself and my disability at work colleagues, uh, some of that research done by the uh, other uh, founder uh, organisations to the Charter. Uh, so there's a good substantive background to it. Uh, a lot of the Charter's recommendations are also reflected in the Centre for Social Justice Disability Commission's report, and that was the report that was, or the commission that was led on by Lord shenquin um, and that itself is important because it's saying. So to the government look it's not just us there's a whole range of different organizations that are calling for a pretty you know similar set of policy proposals that they would want to see put in place um it really is time for you to sit up and listen to these policy proposals because it doesn't matter who you go to talk to you're going to be getting exactly the same message from all of those different parties in terms of what it is that we want you to do um So I'm genuinely hopeful and optimistic at the current time that we are going to be in a position where we can push forward with the Charter and, you know, really press the government to introduce the sorts of proposals that it contains. Uh, And then, you know, if we see those introduced in a concerted fashion, then hopefully what we would all want to see is that that then leads to a step change in terms of improving disabled people's uh, employment prospects.
4: Thank you, Professor Hogue. I want to... Thank you for your leadership and initiative and important research as well in terms of documenting the impact of these policy and practice initiatives on the lives and quality of work of people with disabilities. Our listeners are very fortunate indeed to learn about your initiative so that we may further our own here. And I hope in the future we will continue this conversation.
1: That's great, uh, Peter. Well, thank you very much for giving the opportunity to, to speak to you and to uh, introduce your listeners to the Charter and to give you an idea in terms of what it's about and what we're looking to achieve. And uh, I would love to be able to talk to you, come back maybe in six months time and 12 months time and talk to you about the, uh, the progress that we've made with it.
4: I would very much look forward to that. And I know our listeners would as well. And I'll turn it
3: back now to our host, Barry Whaley. So, Kim, I was just curious, in approaching employers to sign on or endorse the charter, is your approach the same or different between UK-based employers and, say, multinational corporations operating in the country?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. I mean, I think what we're trying to do at the moment is, well, so far our focus has been on getting disability focused charities to sign up, uh, disabled people's organisations and so on. We're right. just shifting our attention now to corporates. And we're only making a few soft approaches to uh, corporates at the moment. We've got about five or six signed up. We've got our first FTSC 250 um, uh, uh, employer signed up, which is uh, Page Group. That's a, you know really sort of quite a, a, a major thing for the charter because that is such a massive firm. Um, What we're focusing on in the charter is the policies that we would like to see governments to introduce. And of course, those are policies that will apply to the UK workforce of that company now it may or be the company would say well actually there's a lot of stuff in here for us to think about in terms of things that we should just be doing anyway uh, as a good employer and we should be doing that not just for our UK workforce but for our global uh, workforce right. but the approach to companies um, in the context of the charter is to say look this is about UK policy the policies mm. that are introduced will apply to the UK Workforce. So, if you have employees outside of the that at the current time doesn't actually apply. Doesn't actually apply to. So, we
3: have found like several groups in the or, or companies in the U.S. have disability affinity groups. One that comes to mind is we've done some work with General Electric. So, you you know maybe maybe the place to start is to find those disability affinity groups within those corporations. Your, uh, your entree.
1: Yeah, that is that is true. I mean, we're doing that with the NHS at the moment. They've got a disabled um, uh, director's forum, I think it's called, which is some very, very high profile people involved in that. The higher you go in the better, to be honest, Barry. Um, otherwise you have to work your way up for a whole series of committees yeah. in order to get to the actual... No, nobody will sign this off except for the board. Right. Right. This has got to go to the very top to get sign off, which makes it a very lengthy process to, um, you know, to get anybody to agree. They don't agree to this stuff lightly because nobody in the organisation can commit the organisation to the the, the, the charter uh, other than the board. So fortunately, we have people involved in the Charter uh, who have very high-level contacts. We're hoping, come the new year, when we actually start to, in a much more concerted way, uh, go after corporate sign-ups, that this is something which is going to really open doors to us. Um, And like I say, I mean, for this government, uh, it's about that corporate sign-up. That will really make, if they see that employers are aligning behind this, And are perfectly happy with the proposals in the charter and are supportive of the proposals in the charter. I think that's the point at which the government will sit up and listen. It already is sitting up and listening, but it will really take it on board, I think, if we get that corporate sign up.
3: Yeah, very good. And all you need is a couple of good champions that, that really, you know, people sit up and take notice.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You tend to get that bandwagon effect, don't you? So if one or two, you know, if we manage to get a major bank or a couple of major banks in the UK signing up to this, you would imagine other uh, firms in the finance sector and the banking sector would follow suit. Um, So doing this on a sector by sector basis is important as well. And, you know, getting that key player and and, and others will hopefully follow. I think that's absolutely right.
3: Yeah, well, I, I, I read through the charter. I looked at the points. I, I wish you luck with this. It, it looks like a great piece of legislation. So,
1: Great, Barry. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Lord Shinquin, Professor Hoke, thank you so very much for being our guest today. And, of course, thank you to our ADA Live listening audience. You can access all ADA Live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts, and resources on our website. At adalive.org. You can listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. Download ADA Live to your mobile device and your podcast app by searching for ADA Live. If you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1 800. 949-4232. Remember those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy, Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Rosda, with Beth Miller Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We also invite you to tune in to our new podcast, Disability Rights Today. Disability Rights Today is your source for in-depth discussion on important court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can learn more at disabilityrightstoday.org. See you next episode.
4: watching. They don't want us to be a part of these